0: Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, February 13th, the Is George Washington Cancelled edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward.
1: I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University.
2: Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Happy early Valentine's
3: Day,
0: you guys. Happy
3: Galentine's uh, Happy Valentine's Day. Galentine's oh, yeah. Day.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: totally a real thing.
0: Uh, we have a great episode planned for this week. Um, but before we get into it, I want to let our listeners know. Everyone, listen up. Our next episode, we are going to be talking about portraitist and street artist Tatiana Fazla Lazade's new book. Stop Telling Women to Smile, so if you want to check that out to get prepared for our discussion with a little pre-reading, you've been warned. As for this week, we are going to start off with a review of Alexis Coe's new book, You Never Forget Your First, what some have been calling a feminist biography of George Washington, some being Marcia Chetland. Uh, <laughs> then we'll discuss Taylor Swift, Jessica Simpson, and the ways women in the spotlight are trying to correct and take control of their own stories. And finally, we're going to talk about women and alcohol, why alcohol-related deaths among women are rising in the U.S., and why some women say Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work for them. And Nicole, what is our Slate Plus bonus segment this week?
2: So in Slate Plus, we are going to ask the question, is ghosting sexist, the habit of disappearing from all communications with someone that you're dating, is that a sexist act?
0: That one came from a listener. Here's a snippet of that conversation.
2: I mean, so. the fact
3: that
0: she just the question,
3: I think yeah. she, she has some,
0: I think she, I think what's happened is that
3: she's recognized that yeah. feeling of like, why
1: did I think
2: that? Mm-hmm. Um,
3: so I guess she has that awareness, but yeah, it is, it is very, it's, it's always interesting when you kind of, some, some behavior like pops up mm-hmm. and you're like, oh God, where did that come from? That mm-hmm. is, that's some old fashioned thinking there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know if ghosting is sexist, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. It's just $35 for your first year. All right, on to our first topic. You never forget your first. It's a new biography of George Washington by the historian Alexis Coe. June is going to sit out this segment because she wasn't able to get her hands on the book. Marsha, you brought this one to us. Why don't you tell us about it?
1: Yes, just in time for every patriot who loves to celebrate President's (laughs) Day. You never forget your first, a biography of George Washington by Alexis Coe, does two things really well that I think will get people interested in considering presidential biography as something that they want to read. She immediately kind of deconstructs the nature of presidential biographies, which is often in that category of Father's Day slash dad books that come out in June at a local bookstore where you'll see it with um, military history books, presidential biographies, and books about barbecuing. (laughs) And she talks about what happens to the quality of the history we learn when it's not only almost exclusively written by men, but what the stakes are in writing about George Washington in a particular way. And I think it is a feminist look at George Washington because it not only rethinks some of the dynamics that have been written about his relationship with his mother and with his wife, but it also critiques the power in setting the narrative of who's a great man and why. And it's really funny because I think the tone is both rigorous, but also exposes just how ridiculous the kind of presidential hero worship is. And I Mm -hmm. think that in the age of Trump, to read about the dangers of canonizing great men just for the sake of doing it or what the kind of investment is. It's an interesting warning sign because I'm sure there will be a generation of great man biographies of Trump, if you can imagine. (laughs) And it's the same kind of politics that I think really exposed the sexism and the gender inequality in the writing of history.
0: Yeah. What I like about this biography is it makes its own biases very clear. Uh, And by that, I mean, it, it sort of does away with the idea of sort of an objective historical analysis of anything it makes, you know, right from the introduction makes clear that every biography is an interpretation, like a new synthesis of source materials, every telling of facts is biased in its own way. Um, And I love that it was a a little bit of a critical review of previous biographies uh, as much as an assessment of the facts that that Alexis Coe was able to find as she was researching George Washington. And it's incredible how different my impression of George Washington was by the end of this book. Not that it, it was like, you know, a takedown of George Washington or anything, but it was a lot more of a humanizing look, I think. I mean, I left the book kind of like concerned for his work-life balance. You know, he was very – he wanted to be home with his family a lot more than he was able to be. I think we all know, you know, the popular history of him does acknowledge that he was a little bit of a reluctant leader at first. You know, he wanted to retire and then he was sort of drawn back in to be president. But I think you get a lot more of a sense of his personality in this biography, than you do in a lot of other tellings, in part because she wasn't afraid to highlight characteristics of his that might not fit this sort of like hyper masculine military leader uh, persona, which I think a lot of people are very invested in maintaining. And it just, it, it, like i went on a lot of um you know little rabbit holes in my brain as i was reading this about what other things we might learn about other leaders and also like ourselves if we divested ourselves from Um, You know, this sort of national myth making around masculinity if we didn't feel like we needed to like venerate everybody in American history as a war hero or something if we were able to, you know, just examine our leaders as they were not to cancel them but to like understand them and and learn from them as actual people instead of as ideas that we create in order to like make our nation seem extra strong.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I liked about this biography is that it actually made me interested in one reading a biography and two reading about George Washington because I am <laughs> not a biography person at all. I find them usually very Dry, even if they're supposed to be the tell-all variety. I just don't, I'm not very interested in them uh, for the most part. And I realized as I was reading the introductory uh, materials here, that it is because, uh, you know, specific to presidents and um, historical figures, that it is because most of them have been written by men who are mm-hmm. trying to prove that these leaders, again, almost always men have always been leaders from the time that they were, you know, <laughs> they took they, their first steps (laughs) They were born to be the, you know, president of the country. And it's like, no, they were just kids, you know, like at at some point, you know, these people were human. Um, So I feel like Alexis Cole does a really good job of, you know, pardon the cliche of humanizing uh, George Washington. And I also really appreciated that she just went ahead and gave me as someone who, barely wants to know about, you know, presidents as someone who, you know, has just heard all these different like myths about him, just got right down to it. What's up with George Washington's teeth? I, you know, <laughs> she gave us that information at the very beginning in the preface. <laughs> yeah, like,
0: this way you're not thinking about it the whole time yes. like when is she going to get to the yes. teeth? Like she just says it. Yes,
2: and so I I really like that because for me as a black woman from the south, I've definitely heard no his teeth were uh, made from the teeth of slaves also the way that she brings it up is just beautiful she says washington had a poacher's smile so she talks about not only did he have teeth from animals in his mouth as a part of his dentures but he had the te- he did have the teeth of slaves sometimes he would buy them and sometimes not but he you know if you can imagine various dentures set with different species <laughs> um the teeth of different species <laughs> then you've got george washington and it's kind of like wow that's gruesome a little bit, you know? I I mean, but yeah, I really appreciate that she just like gave me that. And like, I, I know this is what you want. Here it is. And now let's get to, you know, the nitty gritty. Well, I think the
1: part of it that is also important and kind of weird to think about is how many of these presidential biographies gloss over slavery or make kind of light of slave owning and presidents. Yeah. And that is another thing that this book does not feel the need to either defend or to try to rationalize George Washington's, you know, deep dependence on slavery for his wealth. You know, some of the myths of some of these presidential biographies are of the benevolent slave owner who, Mm -hmm. you know, supported slavery, but they were super nice about it. I think this book and another one called Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Owner Judge are probably the two presidential books that I've read in the past few years that I have appreciated the ways that they are trying to tell a really full story, not only about people, but their choices and remind us that they actually could have made different choices but didn't because the system of slavery and the system of wealth was so much tied into them. I never read presidential biographies. And then a few years ago, I taught this class called Race and Racism in the White House because I'm a huge troll. And I had to start reading presidential texts and the number of pieces that I reviewed for class that did not take race or gender seriously was really appalling. So I hope that the kind of both funny and very serious tone that this book takes will inspire other young women historians to kind of do this type of work.
0: The other thing that really struck me about the way this book approached the people that Washington enslaved was that it really made visible all the sort of (laughs) quote-unquote secondary and tertiary characters that made his life and his achievements possible. And it exposed what I think are gaping holes in other biographies that really try to take a narrow view of one person in American history, whether it be, you know, a president or a military leader or a business leader, to the exclusion of all of the people doing the labor that you know, supported those people. Like, for example, Washington's manservant, enslaved manservant Billy Lee, who accompanied him everywhere he went, and and was basically his secretary in addition to being his personal assistant and and performed all these other duties for him. Like, I had never read such a, a clear-eyed view of of what that meant and also a critique of how other biographies talked about Billy Lee, where they would sort of like, you know, praise him for his devotion and stuff without really recognizing the fact that he didn't have a choice in the matter. You know, he he was enslaved by Washington who had aggressively pursued another, you know, enslaved person who had run away from his uh, plantation Alexis also writes about Martha Washington and Mary Washington, you know, George Washington's wife and mother, and the effect that they had on him and his uh, the the home that they kept and the support that they provided him. And when I try to think about what it means to write a book about a president that's not targeted at men, I was initially like, am I being sexist to think that this book that focuses a little bit more on these other characters is like more appealing to women um you know it, and is not one of those dad books that you mentioned Marcia i I was like am i being sexist do I think that it's uh I'm like selling women short by thinking that we need like a special kind of history book but I actually think it's It's a good thing for people to expect more from history books that, you know, as Alexis Coe makes very clear, every book has its own biases. It just so happens that the history books that have been written by men for men are biased in a way that excludes a lot of women and people of color who are equally important to the narrative.
2: Yeah, I want to kind of go back to um, George Washington and the slaves and the idea that You know, a lot of previous biographies kind of paint him as a a benevolent slave owner who was just, you know, a victim of the times and he had to go along with the process. But I think it's telling that, as Alexis Cole points out, that as soon as he had died... Many of the slaves ran away. They, you know, they couldn't count on the fact that maybe mm. he had freed them in his will or maybe somebody will actually honor that. So they ran away. And I think that that speaks to, you know, it doesn't matter how quote unquote nice your master was, slavery was terrible. And the first chance that people felt that they could take, they took it to leave, and that his wife Martha was afraid of. What would happen to her after his death when it came to what she had to do to honor his requests and how she was going to live with the slaves, with, you know, with the people there. So I, I really appreciated that Alexis Cole pointed out the nuances of of what it meant for George Washington to be a slave owner and how that yeah. affected the rest of his household, including, um, I think, one of the sons who was abusive and was like a terrible person. Mm hmm. So I, I just I thought that was very honest and refreshing, and I hope that it causes more people to um, kind of open their eyes about the truth of, of the situation and that it's not just you can't just brush it off as, oh, well, that's that's just what was happening at the time that people made decisions. And we need to understand that sometimes those decisions were harmful to the people around them.
0: Marsha, as a fellow historian, how do you think about the audience of these kinds of books like what makes a book a dad book and 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 what makes a book not a dad book and and is there something um what is it about this kind of history that is biased toward like the male reader the older white male reader because i think that's what we're talking about when we're when we use the shorthand dad right
1: yeah so a lot of it is just marketing the publishing industry's decision that This is the group of people who will best understand and appreciate this work, and then it sells really well, and then it kind of fuels the system. You know, I think what the idea behind the kind of dad book construction is that men are constantly pooped on by a culture that is constantly critical. So why don't we celebrate the great men of the past in hopes that you can project (laughs) Yourself onto these characters. Mm. And one of the things Alexis um, talks about, and it's kind of funny, but also really disturbing, is all of the depictions of George Washington's thighs and yeah. about his physical specimen. And, you know, what she says is that some of that is about trying to sort out this discomfort of the fact that he didn't have any biological children. And it's to suppress any kind of inkling that he may not have been the most heterosexual of all heterosexual men. And so in many ways, I think this genre of writing isn't just about the person the book is about. It's about masculinity. And I think in these moments where there's a segment of the population that feels like masculinity is in crisis, the prescription is often to then fixate on great men in the past. And I think that that is where some of this comes from. But I also think that some of the gatekeeping of the historical profession creates situations where Only men do presidential history. And so then they train a lot of men in presidential history and presidential biography. And so there isn't a lot of space for women to assert their voices, let alone a different point of view on the form. Can
3: I pop in here? Uh, So I didn't read it yet, although I'm going to, because for one reason, your conversation is making me think I'll really enjoy it. Also, I really liked Alexis Coe's first book, Alice and Frida Forever, which was kind of a lesbian historical story or, you know, true history. But I, I, I have a question, Marsha, like, is this good history? All of the things that you've said, you know, just make me think this is a bit different. And I must concede that in my head, like those big tomes of, you know, written by dudes, these like 700, 800 pages <laughs> about a president who's been written about so many times, like, this is different. Is it good history?
1: I would say that this is exceptional history because there's actually a lot of archival research that is synthesized in order to make really good points or even listicles. And I think that this is good history because unlike some of the other biographies, What they do is they just cite other biographies. So there's an entire industry of popular history in which people aren't doing a lot of primary document research to find the source. They're just citing all the other dudes who wrote the history before. And part of her discussion of the process, I saw her give a talk about this book at Mount Vernon, which was fascinating to watch the audience. Um, (laughs) But, you know, she said, like, I would read these books about George Washington, and people would make these claims, and I would go to their notes, and they were just citing each other. And, you know, she spent a lot of time at Mount Vernon actually, you know, reading the documents there. And I think, again, those big books... The, the dad presidential books give you the feeling of authority. And I think it's just because the covers are designed that way.
0: And because there's a man's name on the cover. Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a man's name on the cover and he might have an affiliation at, a, at what we say is a top university, but it doesn't take long to see a lot of sloppy work in that field.
0: I love the shade in what we say is a top university. <laughs> um, I'll also say that her devotion to the primary source material here is really clear and she makes it clear that a lot of people can read even even folks who did go back to those primary documents can read the same you know letters from Washington to his mother let's say and and come up with completely different interpretations of it and I think that's where she says some biases come in where, you know, previous biographers have talked about Mary Washington, George Washington's mother, as like shrewish and unloving. And she brings in all of this context where, you know, when you were a mother in that day and age and you were concerned about your children dying, you weren't preventing your son from joining the British Navy because you didn't want him to succeed or you were selfish or whatever. You were doing it because you thought he was probably going to die and he was really important to you. And I loved reading what it seemed like were, you know, new bits of information that she was bringing out that maybe previous biographers, whether because they were citing each other or because they just didn't think the other characters were important, had left out of their histories, but also the ways she interpreted the the same documents a little bit differently.
2: I don't know if it's just me, but I kept confusing Mary and Martha, and I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I guess maybe because I was bringing my own previous experiences with trying to learn about Washington's history and it felt like Maybe his wife and his mother were kind of dismissed in the same way as just mm. these shrewish people or these cold hearted, not very maternal people. And so like, he had to power through their lack of love or something to get to be <laughs> the president. But I thought it was very interesting that um, I learned that Martha really did not enjoy sharing George with the world, as it were. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of Michelle Obama and and, mm. and how she was reluctantly a first lady and that she, you know, really didn't seem to enjoy her experience but had to kind of suck it up and, and you know, go with the flow. I don't know if that, if that comparison is accurate, but that's just kind of what popped into my head when I was reading this. All right, I think that's
0: all the time we have for this book. It's called You Never Forget Your First a great book. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Do you read the kinds of presidential histories we're talking about? Have you bought a dad book from someone? Have you read a dad book? Are you a dad who loves books? Email us <laughs> at the waves at Slate.com. A new documentary about the career of Taylor Swift came out on Netflix last month. It's called Miss Americana, named after one of her recent songs. It's an authorized documentary. So when I was watching it, I found it kind of hard to assess as like a real window into the life of Taylor Swift, which is sort of how it was marketed, because I know she's given the green light to every piece of footage. You know, even the act of observation changes the events in a documentary. Um, so I think it's probably better interpreted as a commercial than any kind of <laughs> tell-all. Um, but the fact that Taylor Swift made this at all and in this way is interesting to me. So she negotiated with Netflix. She she you know expressed interest to them. She chose the director Lana Wilson, and the fact that this is a Netflix documentary instead of a series of self-released videos, which is very possible in the age of Mm -hmm. social media, gives it a kind of air of authority and objectivity. And it's framed very much as an attempt to reshape the public narrative around Taylor Swift. So around her her issues with Kanye West, a conflict that she really didn't ask to be a part of at age 20, but somehow ended up being portrayed as like a two-sided feud. It talks about her relationship to her body, to fame and her fans, what it feels like to be pressured to fit a certain mold of a female celebrity, but then hated for trying too hard to fit into that mold. And at the same time, in sort of the same vein, Jessica Simpson has now released a new autobiography, Open Book, and in interviews she's given on the press tour for this book, she has painted a similarly kind of grim picture a little bit more grim i think than taylor swift of what it was like for her for so many years to be the subject of media fascination and disgust i think those two things kind of come together as a pair a lot when we're talking about female celebrities she has talked about what it was like to have constant chatter and criticism about her weight her relationships her intelligence she also writes that it drove her to abuse alcohol um, and to develop unhealthy eating habits. And so reading those interviews, watching Taylor Swift's documentary, I feel like they reacted to similar pressures of fame in two different ways. Jessica Simpson, you know, was sort of portrayed as like this ditz and she kind of ended up embracing it because maybe she didn't have a choice. She didn't really fight back that much. She committed to a bunch of reality TV shows. She stopped making music. She hasn't released an album in 10 years. And then she stepped back from the spotlight and made millions of dollars making clothes. And really kind of let go of her career as a pop artist. Taylor Swift, meanwhile, doubled down on her pop music and made a name for herself for dragging her haters, for writing songs about them, about, you know, how hard it was to be the subject of this media obsession with her and Kanye West. And, you know, sort of building this army of fans who are ready to defend her at every turn. Um so I'm wondering what you guys think about these two artists and, and famous women coming out at this time with their own stories. What did you get out of it?
3: It does seem part of this whole process that we've observed and many people have observed over the last few years of like people taking back control because now it is easy. I agree, um, Christina, that it's interesting that Taylor Swift, who is, you know, in a sort of Beyonce-like position where if you want to v- Documentary about you, you can get one. If you want yeah. to have millions of people watch your videos, you can do that. Like, you get to make choices that she chose to make a behind the scenes thing. You know, now this is all part of that thing that, you know, what happened to the tabloids, they're pretty much dead because celebrities now have control themselves. They put their own photos on Instagram. And it was really interesting to me that Jessica Simpson, whose book, you know, has been relatively well responded to, received. There was a New York Times profile and the the writer went off to spend time with her. And she talked about how, uh, you know, it was great that she got the interview of PR persons who's promised they wouldn't be hanging around, was hanging around the whole time. And that after, after the reporter asked her first question, basically Jessica Simpson just talked for two hours just solid up, just like gave it, just like one long monologue and that feels like it's a part of it to me it yeah. is about taking back control it's about being in charge you know people have written books uh, you mentioned you know tell-alls or behind the scenes you know this is my chance to tell you what really happened that's been around forever but just the level of control now just seems to to have gone up on all bases i thought it was really interesting um When Slate's Sam Adams wrote about Miss Americana at Sundance, he said, it's not a movie about getting behind Swift's public image, but about her decision to alter it. So you can see the, you know, you can see the strings being pulled. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's where we are now and there's no point fighting it.
2: Yeah, I liked from that same review that he says, this version that we're getting of Taylor Swift may not be the real one, but it's a new one. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I feel. And I, you know, I freely admit I have some biases against Taylor Swift. So I was very reluctant to look at the documentary to watch it. But one of my really good friends, she was like, no, you should absolutely watch it because I kind of did change my mind about her. And I was like, "Mm, are you sure? (laughs) Um, I did not change my mind about Taylor. I I do feel like it, What Christina said, that it is a commercial, um, which I guess that's what it's supposed to be anyway, maybe. But I I didn't really feel like I came away with too much that was new or surprising. And maybe that's, again, my fault for trying to expect something a little juicier (laughs) from a documentary. And not necessarily specific to Taylor Swift, but just in general, maybe I'm just... I don't know, celeb gossip has, like, twisted my my mind, and I want something that's a little more interesting than what I saw in Miss Americana. But what I, I liked, Jessica Simpson's memoir autobiography, that she, it did feel very much like I was going over to, you know, friends of the family's house and she was like come on in i'm gonna fix you some sweet tea and then she just tells me all about her, her life yeah just like everything <laughs> um it was just very it seemed very personal and i you know very intimate i felt like i was a part of the actual conversation with her and that may be again that texas charm you know this kind of beauty pageants kind of feel to it but it makes me think of Um, As we're talking about celebrities, particularly women, trying to get control of their image, it makes me think about the situation with Janet Jackson and Mm. um, the late director John Singleton on the set of Poetic Justice. So he put out this rumor that she refused to kiss Tupac, her co-star, until he had um, an HIV test, until his test results came back. So at the time, of course, everybody was terrible to Janet. And then it wasn't until... I believe after John Singleton had passed or like shortly before that, that it came out that he made that up because he was trying to drum up publicity for the movie. And Mm -hmm. so we have, you know, 20 years of people being assholes to Janet about this and she couldn't correct it. You know, there was no way for her to correct it. These actions of men to change the narrative a certain way, to present a certain narrative have affected women. But now we have more celebrities who are like, I let it go for so long and now I need to correct it because I don't want this to be a part of my legacy, these lies to be a part of my legacy. So I'm really interested in seeing who else is going to come out to try to correct the lies and rumors that people have put out there in order to advance their various projects. Mm.
1: Marcia, what do you think? So I don't know if I'm the audience for this type of celebrity stuff, although I'm not above celebrity you know, gossip magazines or tabloids, um, or what have you. But I think that Taylor Swift is thirty, and Jessica Simpson is close to forty. And I think for these two women who very much grew up in the spotlight, who were groomed at a young age for performance, they're letting us into their existential crises. Mm-hmm. I think Jessica Simpson, probably, feels like she has a little less to lose because her brand has migrated from pop music to her clothing line. She has kids and a family, and so her reappearance as a reflective character, I think, doesn't kind of disturb what she's had going on financially for a while. I think for Taylor Swift, it's not in her best interest to expose too much. I think Christina's right that this is her infomercial that is designed as she approaches her 30s to remain relevant and to appeal to another segment of the population because both of them, a lot of the interest in them came from little girls. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you are in a position where you're marketed because of your youth and because of your popularity with youth, then growing up and finding a new identity must be really, really hard. And so I don't find them that compelling. And I think it's interesting to think about what kind of developmental stages people go through when they're so young and they're not only performing, but in many cases, they're earning the household income Mm -hmm. or they're contributing to it or they're keeping their parents on their payroll. All of those dynamics, I think, are far more interesting maybe than the types of things that they reveal, especially for Taylor Swift. I think that her movie doesn't reveal very much about her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I just realized why, when we're talking about uh, Jessica Simpson and Taylor Swift, why I feel more more drawn to Jessica Simpson is I feel like she has kind of always been an underdog or she's been presented as an underdog. Mm -hmm. When she first came on the scene, and she started out doing Christian music, I believe, and... You know, she was forced to hide her breasts, like, you know, because she was fairly well developed at a young age or whatever. So people felt that she was too sexy to be singing Christian music. And she felt, you know, she talked about that. I remember very early on and it always seemed like her relationship with her father as the breadwinner was, you know, always kind of weird and strange. Um And when the reality show, when she's like, is this chicken or tuna? You know, that famous thing. Yeah, chicken or fish. Um, That thing, I always felt like, oh, poor baby. You know, like there's something more here. um, Whereas Taylor kind of came out the gate like, I told my parents I wanted to go to Nashville and become a star, and that's what they did. Like, she always kind of presented this very assertive, confident persona, and so maybe I didn't have that same sort of, like, oh, I need to make sure that she succeeds because she's going to make sure she succeeds. Yeah. I don't need to do anything to help her. So that that just kind of helped me look at my own bias. Hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because I... My experience of Taylor Swift is really listening to her albums or watching things to talk about them on podcasts. Like I've never just <laughs> experienced it naturally, organically. And that, of course, is yet another weird, you know, perception thing that I've always been, you know, watching someone else's version of a thing that she's put out to win win over listeners to, to sell stuff. And I have to admit that I did find the the sort of the images in the documentary of her as a kid where she seems so, you know, preternaturally confident and capable and poised as really a tot. And that she also had that look that is in many ways uh perceived as or sold as that perfect look. She's tall, she's skinny, she's blonde, she's da-da-da-da-da. Like none of the things that I am but you know we know what's valued and that is valued and just like how she would have how did she get that confidence how did like so there are interesting things to me among all of it but yeah that there I know exactly what you mean that this whole thing I think we all suspect suspect or know that Jessica Simpson got the the crappy edit she got the edit to bring eyeballs to her show it was a very early reality show and so like She was it was almost like she was being experimented upon to find out what is it that will make people watch this thing that we're calling reality TV and and that there is a sympathy. And I think the fact that her clothing brand as all the articles mentioned, like is a massive success and, you know, broke a billion dollars in sales per year pretty early on that like she is massive at the same time when in all of these pieces and in fact in her book as well. When she's talking about her life, sure she talks about her kids. She's got three little kids. She talks about her husband, who was an NFL player and went to Yale. Uh, she mentions those things, but she also talks so much about her employees. It's like her employees are her family, and yeah. you know they've they've been with her for a long time. and And I get that she has this weird life, but it is still a very strange and unattractive version of financial success and and commercial success and all the things that we're supposed to want. I think, well, I don't want that. Mm.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting to read both of these, but especially Miss Americana as sort of a meta commentary on what we expect of female celebrities now. Mm. So, you know, we've talked before on this podcast about how influencers are expected to and and benefit from sort of performing imperfection and vulnerability and insecurity in a very specific way. And for Taylor Swift, I think in her songs, and she is a great songwriter, mm-hmm. I think, it's, it's part of why her fans love her because she is very good at bringing out those feelings and those sort of quote unquote insecurities in her songs she mentions in in the documentary like the, uh, a thing that a lot of people have observed which is that people who become famous when they're young sort of freeze at that mm, developmental mm. stage you know i one thing i don't like about her most recent album is it does still feel like a high school album yeah. and she's about my age you know far from high school but In the documentary, when it's showing her, you know, quote unquote, trying to figure out whether it's time for her to expose her political beliefs or come out in favor of a politician or in this case against Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee where she lives now, I thought that was interesting as an indication of what we expect from political celebrities we we really criticize celebrities i think for making these kinds of decisions based on business imperatives mm-hmm. you know what is it profitable for me to do versus like what is it moral or ethical for me to do i don't think that's it's necessarily a bad thing that that she was also considering or that her team was considering will it you know tank your career if you express an opinion on politics but in her film she tries very hard, I think, to make it clear that she was the only person on her team or she and her mom were the only people saying, I want to do this because it's right. And I don't care what happens to my business when, you know, as we all know, she did not take any significant hit from expressing an opinion against Marsha Blackburn and Trump. But I think she feels the need to sort of prove that those opinions come from a place of honesty mm-hmm. and not from a place of pandering calculation yeah. right where you know of course everything is calculated when you're running a million or billion dollar business and have hundreds of people on your payroll th- it's impossible to do anything without calculating it yeah yeah all right i think that's about it for women's celebrities uh, on this episode Listeners, if you've watched Miss Americana, have you read the interviews with Jessica Simpson or read her book? We'd love to hear what you think, especially if you've been following their careers for a while. Our email address is com. All right. Our last topic for this show, women and alcohol. June, what's the story here?
3: So the subject of women and alcohol it's come up in the news and opinion pieces recently with such frequency that it seemed like something we should talk about. A recently released analysis of the rate of deaths related to alcohol abuse showed that it rose sharply for women between 1999 and 2017. So in 1999 Like a little over 7,500 women were classified as dying from causes related to alcohol. And in 2017, that number was 18,000. So it's a jump of 85%. Now, we should note here that this is still much lower than the rates for men. For men, the death rate was up 35% over that period. But the raw numbers were much higher, nearly 36,000 in 1999 and 72,500 in 2017. So still a lot less than men. But huge jump. And around the same time that this information was released, there have also been a number of op eds and books suggesting that the post rehab treatment for alcoholism that has become the standard treatment and is seen. Quite often, as the only treatment, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous can be problematic for women. So Holly Whitaker pointed out that AA was founded back in 1939 by some very privileged white men and that the essential steps, things like admitting powerlessness, setting aside ego, submitting to a higher power, making amends, aren't necessarily the underlying causes of women's excessive drinking. She wrote powerlessness isn't what many women who struggle with alcohol need. It's what made them sick in the first place. So it seemed like there was both statistical information suggesting that women are not only drinking more, but having more problems with alcohol, but that also that some of the received notions, like when you have a problem with alcohol, when you recognize a problem, this is what you do to address it, may actually not really be right for for everyone and certainly maybe less right
1: for women. I thought these articles were really interesting to think about whether the whole addiction model needs an update, Mm. because I think that this idea of why people abuse alcohol, we have a more sophisticated understanding of maybe the social pressures that can fall along gender lines, but I don't think there has been very much innovation in the treatment of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because AA has been successful and is considered the gold standard of how to provide accessible treatment to a large population at, you know, no cost and to create a community around addiction, but I think that some of the arguments against Alcoholics Anonymous are are really compelling Mm -hmm. about the framework to do the kind of Mm self-inventory that I think when we think about gender can be more destructive to women than empowering. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, this was so interesting for me to read about because it kind of gave me like this duh moment. Like, of course we need to figure out a better way to treat women because so much medical research for the most part has always been done on men, you know, on male patients. Um, And so whatever um, research has gone into how to help people with alcoholism, most often it's going to be, you know, dedicated towards men. And this idea that powerlessness is the cause of the sickness. I think that's, that just kind of blew me away. Um, and I'm thinking uh, also about, you know, our previous discussions about those mom shirts and things, yep, yep. you know, like it's, you know, mommy needs her wine time mm-hmm. and things like that. And the ways that we have, you know, possibly given a lighter um look or or whatever like we don't necessarily hold um, women's issues with alcohol in the same way you know we, we kind of make light of it i guess is what i'm trying to say and i i know that i have a, a history of alcoholism in my family so for me i i've never like talked to anybody about that because i always made sure that I did not get into the habit of drinking alone. Like when I'm at, you know, at home, um, I tend to just be a social drinker, you know, only when I'm around friends or something like that. So I feel like that's me trying to combat Mm -hmm. my history. And so to see in the research that we read, to see the way women have kind of had to take it into their own hands to figure out the ways that they have to combat dependency on alcohol, even in our Jessica Simpson, Mm -hmm. um, Materials we saw that she kind of had to figure out her own way to cope uh, yeah, with, with not to go yeah, there yeah. and with how to cope with her dependency so this was really fascinating for me and i am um, i'm interested to see like what kind of what kind of help will come for women because it seems you know in the way that a lot of um you know, we have these kind of women-centered things now. I'm thinking of something like The Wing as we mm-hmm. talk about Alexis Coe and stuff like that and, and how, you know, sometimes when we focus on women, sometimes it's not the best either. Mm-hmm. So I'm just interested in seeing where the recovery options what kind of recovery options we can provide that are specific for women without alienating women and like covering it in pink or something Mm -hmm. you know
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah. i read actually in vice about a women-only addiction recovery group in london called feminism for change and women in that group said uh, in this piece that in mixed gender addiction recovery groups, whether they're AA or not, men often dominate the conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's almost like the kinds of things that happen in any mixed gender Mm -hmm. group, you know, those groups will tilt towards serving the men's needs and cause women to monitor their own behavior for uh, acceptability in mixed company where women are conscious of coming across as You know, a bitch or Mm -hmm. don't feel comfortable talking about, quote unquote, woman things. The example given in the piece is periods. I don't know why necessarily women be talking about periods in an addiction recovery group, but who knows. But I can also imagine, you know, sexual assault, domestic Mm -hmm. abuse, the Mm -hmm. other kinds of things that often go along with addiction there are ways that a, a gender-informed recovery group, whether it's women-only or not, could uh, be of a lot more use than a, a one-size-fits-all mixed-gender group that is automatically going to skew toward whatever the, the dominant identity in the group is.
3: Yeah, and it's really
0: easy to see
3: why Alcoholics Anonymous and the other related anonymous groups are so popular, partly because they are effectively free, they're voluntary, they're, you know, there's, there's this structure— uh, for socializing and, and for getting support that it's you know is is kind of wonderful. I wish there were more of that kind of free voluntary support kind of structure in other th- parts of life. And clearly it has been very effective for many people. You know, I've known many people who have been gotten you know, their recovery was possible because of NA or AA kinds of groups at the same time just some of the specific messaging some of the these 12 steps that seem um you know i guess don't knock it till you've needed it but it they when you kind of look at the language and you look at what people are expected to really reflect on to really take seriously to 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 use to to restart their lives they don't seem like the kinds of of kind of koans that you necessarily will will put you in the right kind of place to start over
0: To go back to what Holly Whitaker wrote about in the New York Times about why Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't a solution for her, and she said the antidote to my drinking problem looked a lot like feminism, when we were reading about the – study on alcohol-related deaths. (laughs) Patricia Powell of the National Institutes for Health said part of being liberated from male dominance is being able to behave in which way you choose. Some women have gotten the message that it's liberating to drink like a man. And she was talking specifically about young women consuming alcohol. And First of all, I think there's a big difference between, quote-unquote, drinking like a man and, mm. quote-unquote, abusing alcohol. You know, it's sure. not the same thing. And, and certainly I don't think we've been liberated from male dominance <laughs> yet. Um, but it, it made me think about the social conditions under which women, for instance, arrive at college mm. and participate in a heavy drinking scene. Mm. And I think part of it is that women are taught that, casual sex, you know, is shameful, makes them dirty. You know, I think about all the abstinence only sex education mm. that women get in, in middle school and high school about when you lose your virginity, you're like a chewed up piece of gum that everyone's passing around or something. And, and certainly that's not the whole reason why people drink in college. Mm. But I think one reason why people drink is to alleviate some of that social anxiety or to take away some of those inhibitions that are affected by gendered indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if, if you are a woman in college who wants to have sex and you think the only acceptable way to do that is to be drunk first, or if, if it's the only way that you can make yourself feel comfortable doing it is to drink first. Like, it's not just because of what everyone's doing around you and you're trying to keep up with the boys or whatever. It's, it's because of the way we've trained women to conceive of themselves in a, in a social situation. Well, and I think too
3: that there's there is something to the way that you know female behavior, male behavior, it does is now less separate. I mean, just to use the most ridiculous, you know, anecdotal piece of evidence. I'm making scare quotes. Like in Britain, when it used to be that you you know went out with your friends, women would drink half pints, men would drink pints. Now <laughs> there were there were reasons why this was annoying, especially in the culture of buying rounds that basically women are paying for men to drink more than they the men have to pay for them to drink.
0: Was it like a bartender would automatically give a woman a half pint? Or, it, it or would they say like three half pints and four pints?
3: It wasn't automatic, but I think there was it was considered I mean and now I'm old, so this was this is now decades ago. It was considered just it would be very strange for a woman to drink a pint. Like that huh. was aberrant behavior. Now everybody Drinks the same, you know, because for various reasons, like it's fairer. Uh, you know, why why would we have all these different? I don't even know why, but I see it like on television. I see it in pubs. People, if people are drinking beer, they are drinking pints, or everybody's drinking the same. There's not like that gender difference has, if not disappeared, it's certainly decreased a lot. And you know what we also read is that women's bodies don't deal with alcohol in the same way, and it has a bigger effect on women. And so, you know, that just feels like, uh, I think that the fact that we have less strict, uh, you know, female behavior, male behavior, that seems like an absolute positive. But then when it causes health impacts, then... I don't know, Then, not so much, not so great. Uh, if, hmm. if we're drinking, we're literally drinking more alcohol.
2: That's probably not the best thing for us. The whole gender thing of drinking like a man or, you know, whatever... Um Lately, I would say in the last five years or so, there's been kind of this increase in women signaling a certain something by saying that they drink whiskey yep. to be, you know, to impress men. Are you um, talking uh, as Twitter handle T and whiskey woman? <laughs> Maybe a little bit, <laughs> but that's not what that's for. <laughs> um, but no. But anytime I, you know, if a guy's gonna buy me a drink or something, I say, you know, I just want some whiskey neat, and they're just like, oh, mm-hmm. like, like it, and I'm like, what? Is, what? Aren't you drinking that? You know, it's like. The, I don't know if uh, people still expect women to hold on to their glasses of wine, you know, Grigio. yeah, right. Um, so there's, ice in it. Yeah. So there's still <laughs> very much uh, a gendered tent to drinking and what women are allowed to drink. Yep. And so I'm from a place where women really don't drink beer or mm-hmm. they're not supposed mm-hmm. to drink beer. Mm-hmm. It's like men drink the beer and women drink the coolers and the wine or mm-hmm. whatever, some sort of cocktail. that's very sweet and fruity. Um, so to, he, you know, so Me, I get, like, impressed when I see a woman drinking beer because I think, I don't know, like, it's just not what I was, you know, kind of raised on. So there's still definitely gendered thinking about women drinking and what we're allowed to drink. Um, So to hear you talk about the half pints and the the full pints and things like that, that's, um, I'm like, wow. All
0: right. I think that's about all the time we have for this topic. Listeners. Have your habits on alcohol changed? Have you heard of any modified treatments around substance abuse for women? Let us know.
2: The Waves at Slate.com. All right. It's time for our recommendations. Okay. So I am going to recommend a limited series on Netflix. The English title is Playing with Fire. And the Spanish title is Jugar con Fuego. And it is about uh, a Mexican immigrant in Colombia at these uh, coffee farms or coffee plantations. Um, His name is Fabrizio (laughs) and uh, he is very, very pretty and um, you know, he is quite charming and he ends up having relationships with um, this woman named Camila and another woman named Martina and then Andrea Martina's daughter. (laughs) And (laughs) so playing with fire is very much a story. Steamy soap, Spanish language soap. It's just, you know, 10 episodes on Netflix. It's just something that you just kind of, if you just need to, like, let go of the world and you just want to look at some very passionate people and very beautiful people and just kind of, you know, get into some soap opera loving, Mm -hmm. um, I strongly recommend that. So Playing With Fire, uh, it is... uh, subtitled, or I watch with subtitles, so if you are okay with that, go forth. Uh, I don't know if you can... On a lot of the Netflix shows that are in Spanish, you can
3: choose to listen
2: to a okay. dope version,
3: but I don't know, obviously, I don't know if that's the case with this one. Yeah,
2: yeah, but I um, I like watching um, shows that are not in English, just for my, I don't know, I feel like it exercises my brain uh-huh. in a different way, and right. it just changes up, um, changes up the experience. So, Playing with Fire, Netflix, 10 episodes, lovely little steamy, passionate soap, get into it. Sounds great.
3: I am also going to recommend a a TV show, um, which I have been binging. I know that's a, a, a charged word, but... It- it's really what I've been doing. Um, so I was very late to it. It's called The Expanse, and it's now available on Amazon Prime. And you know that the title will give it away. It's a kind of a space opera. But like many sort of sci-fi shows, it's really a thinly veiled comparison with with situations that we can um, we can kind of pin to something that's happening in our real world. In this particular world, it's which is relatively far in the future. Earth and Mars are always very close to war, and the people in the asteroid belt, in between those planets, they have fewer rights. their Their bodies are literally, you know, punished by by the place where they grow up, uh, by where they grew up, by where they have to live. the The sort of circumstances in which they live, everyone's fighting for water and for oxygen and you know that may sound like something that is not for you it might not be and there aren't that many uh really prominent female roles but the two that are very prominent are really interesting one is naomi nagata a sort of an engineer who can make any craft work Uh, she's played by this english woman dominique tipper from from what i hear from the accent that she uses in the show a working class black brit who's awesome and also Shokhre Agdashlu who has been on many shows but she plays a UN official she's often dismissed as an old woman or the old woman uh, but she is incredibly canny incredibly smart maybe not trustworthy it's really good. I have found myself turning it on uh, at all kinds of, you know, when I just kind of in a similar situation to the one you described, Nicole, it's it's a nice show that has a lot going on and can be used as, as a like a way to think about the real world, but can also just be a kind of escape with pretty people doing interesting <laughs> things.
0: Kind of like uh, this podcast. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I'm going to recommend something a little different this week. So I've been taking a free online class on a website called Coursera. Mm. I was inspired by a friend of mine who's studying to be a nurse midwife, and she was taking an anatomy class. And I had just, you know, had somebody in my family who had a health thing, and I had been doing a lot of research on it, and I kind of realized how much I didn't know about you know, having a body, which I have all the time. And so I was like, huh, maybe I'll enroll in, you know, a community college course. But my friend who's a scientist was like, if you're not trying to get a degree, there's absolutely no need to pay, you know, thousands of dollars for a class. You can go on this website and take a free kind of like a college class. So I'm taking an intro to human physiology class on Coursera by these two Duke professors. And I haven't taken a hard science class or really done anything related to the hard sciences since high school. Mm. And it has completely awakened a new part of my brain, actually kind of two parts of my brains, the part that is learning about science stuff and also just the part that is learning about something for a, a no reason at all. You know, I when I think about the other kinds of, I guess you could call this a hobby, like hobbies that I do, <laughs> you know, I'll like make candles or like bake bread <laughs> and those are things that have an end result that I that could be better or worse. Or even like playing music or something. I taught myself a little bit of piano when I was in a band, but that's also a thing that I could do better or worse. There's really no better or worse way to like learn how a neuron works <laughs> and there's like quizzes at the end of every section, but I kind of don't care how I do on them and I'm really just trying to like, gain new information, not for work. Again, like, a lot of the books uh-huh. I read, like, have something to do with my job and my beat here. And and this is just, like, knowledge for the sake of me wanting to learn a thing. And it has been, like, kind of difficult. I'm having to look up a lot of words that I don't know. Because, <laughs> again, like, in college, the only science class I took was, like, philosophy of quantum physics, Oof. which was more of the philosophy than the physics part, because I was like, oh, I'm not going into the sciences I have, and I have no reason to learn about them. So it's been a lot of fun and increasing my sense of wonder about the world. And I highly recommend it. It's, it's completely free. I don't know how they do that. Um, I guess you can pay to get a, a certificate or something. So maybe that's how they make their money. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. Awesome.
1: That sounds great. My recommendation comes from the Feminist Press, and it's a reissue of a Zora Neale Hurston Mm -hmm. reader called, I Love Myself When I'm Laughing, and then again, When I'm Looking Mean and Impressive. Mm -hmm. And it has a new introductory essay by Alice Walker, um, an introduction by Mary Helen Washington, and it's a nice introduction to the range of Zora Neale Hurston, who I find fascinating Not only because she was a preeminent scholar in anthropology and a creative writer, but she's one of these authors who had this period of obscurity and then was kind of introduced into the canon of high school and college. And so a lot of people have read Their Eyes Are Watching God, but have no concept of her range as a writer and as a thinker. And so um, it's a very beautifully edited collection of excerpts of her work. And I think for people who are looking for something a little different in terms of both fiction and nonfiction, this reader is the perfect thing to get.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I almost recommended uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Hitting a Straight Lick with the Cricket Stick, which is oh. a, a, a collection of stories from the Harlem Renaissance. And that just came out last month or and within the last couple of months. Um, I So I almost recommended that. So Zora Neale is on our mind today. Huh. Wow.
0: All right. That's it for our show. Thank you to Lindsay Cradwell, who produced this episode, Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Rosemary Belson, who recorded us in DC. For Marcia Chatland, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotterucci. Thanks for listening.